Well, this is like coming up for air after having held your breath for four months. I'm so glad to be back to Sunday nights. This is a, a joy for us. Let me give you a few statements that various churches in America have made about what we're doing now, about their gathered worship time. One church says, quote, Worship is an invitation to experience God. Another church says worship is about having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And yet another says worship is the ecstasy of love. All of these statements are appealing, they're comforting, they're attractive, they're even seductive, we might say. And all of them have a measure or a percentage of truth to them. They're philosophies of worship, and that is how we view the worship of God. But all of those statements, and many more like them, have one thing in common. What they have in common is that worship is ultimately something I do for myself. It's a consumer activity. One popular song about worship says this very openly. When I come into your presence, I can feel your anointing like an overflowing fountain with the flow of your power. It saturates my spirit and the breakthrough overflows my soul. I don't even know what that means. It's a whole bunch of words strung together that sound very spiritual. Six lines that says absolutely nothing. There's no truth in it. And in fact, the chorus of the song even more directly says that worship is something I do for myself. I need a worship experience, connection with your spirit, empowered by your presence. Yeah. I need a worship experience, connection with your spirit, empowered by your presence. Everyone. Yeah. And it sounds so appealing. We do want to experience God. We do want a worship experience. Words like encounter and ecstasy and overflowing. These are attractive words. I wonder if Job would share the opinion that worship is the ecstasy of love. After God sovereignly allowed Satan to kill Job's seven sons and three daughters and take away all of his vast wealth, Job 1, beginning in verse 20, says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if David would share the opinion that worship is the ecstasy of love. King David wrote in Psalm 3, in a great statement of worship, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory And the lifter of my head, salvation belongs to the Lord. Was this in a moment of ecstasy of love? No. It was when he had just been ousted from his own throne by his own son and was on the run for his life. I seriously doubt that Job or David would say in those moments that worship is the ecstasy of love. Let me give you a better definition of worship. A better definition of worship is Attributing worth to God above all things. Attributing worth to God above all things. This isn't attached to a particular emotion. It's not attached to a particular experience. And it places the focus and the value on God and on God alone. Now, there is a condition that exists. There's a condition that has to be met to be able to attribute worth to God above all things. And that one condition is God only receives the worship of forgiven people. He only receives the worship of forgiven people. The person may show up to a church service. They may sing the songs. They may listen to a message. They may pray the prayers. They may give an offering. They may take communion even. And yet, if that person has refused to obey the gospel and repent of sin and ask for forgiveness as a new creation in Christ, now fully loyal to Christ and Christ alone, then all those actions not only are not acts of worship, they're actually an abomination to God. And why is that? Because that person is putting on an outward show of honoring God while still possessing idols of self and sin and pride. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In other words, it gets you no points and it's worthless. So if worship is attributing worth to God above all things, then clearly we need some principles to inform our worship. How do we think about it? And our continuing series in the book of Numbers is going to help us with that. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7 and 
Perhaps later this week you might find it helpful to go back and listen to our introductory message on numbers, how to understand numbers. Remember that numbers is very little about numbers. It's much more about the maturing of God's people, the spiritual maturity of His people. Tonight we're going to look at spiritual maturity through worship. So we find ourselves back with the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel is being prepared by God to leave Mount Sinai. They've escaped Egypt. Now they've received the law of God. They have agreed to covenant with God as their Lord and King. And now they're preparing to leave for the promised land of Canaan. This is to fulfill God's promise and his mandate to take the land that was originally deeded to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one of the preparations that God is making with Israel concerns their life of worship. And their life was to be centered on worship. Worship was to be the community, the, the, the center of everything that God's people did. And in Numbers 7, in several chapters following, we can glean some principles of worship. Ideas that inform your own heart to ensure that your worship of God is proper, that it's true. It's from a broken heart, it's from a humbled heart, a heart saved by the grace of Christ. Now, you would be right to ask... But worship in the Old Testament and New Testament is totally different, right? I mean, after all, we're under the New Covenant. So why are we studying worship in the Old Testament? Well, very certainly, many elements of our worship are different. We celebrate the Lord's table now instead of Passover. We baptize new believers in Christ. That's not something that was done in the Old Testament. We preach sermons from the New Testament, which Israel didn't have. And, of course, we don't bring a sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made already in Christ. And so many elements of our worship are different, most certainly. But the principles of worship, they transcend time. They transcend covenant because God has never changed. The same God demands the same loyalty, the same fidelity. And so actually, a look back at God's worship interactions with Israel, we, we find it very refreshing Because it elevates God to his rightful place and it rightly lowers mankind into the proper posture of worship, which very often in the church we have lost, as evidenced by the fact that in American evangelicalism, worship is something I go to as a consumer to get something instead of something I give. So let's inform our minds with some principles of worship, really just some key words to remember. The first one we'll call the principle of holiness. The principle of holiness. And we start in Numbers chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Numbers, so let me give you a little review. You'll recall that God assigned three clans, three three families, so to speak, from the tribe of Levi. Levi is the set-apart tribe for service unto God. And these clans were were given specific acts of service concerning worship, concerning the tabernacle, which is the the portable worship center of Israel. You had the clan of Gershon. They were in charge of carrying all the curtains and the tabernacle coverings. You had the clan of Merari. They were charged with carrying all the framing pieces of the tabernacle, the pillars, the posts, the bases, the, the, the structure. And then you had the clan of Kohath. They were charged with carrying the most holy things of the tabernacle the veil of the tabernacle the table of the bread of the presence the dishes the bowls the cups the lampstand the utensils the golden altar all the worship paraphernalia of course the ark of the covenant but the sons of Kohath were to carry those things by hand it was to be they were to be carried on their shoulders not using any sort of cart any sort of animals no help at all And so these six wagons and these oxen are distributed to the clans of Gershon and Merari, but not to Kohath. Verse 9 says, But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. What were these wagons for, these carts? Well, they were taken around to the various tribes of Israel, encamped around 
at the mount at the base of Mount Sinai. And these carts were collecting a large dedication offering for the altar and for the tabernacle. This was to inaugurate the very first use of the tabernacle. It was a big deal. This is God's chosen place of worship. So with this, how are we reminded then of the holiness and the purity and the perfection of God? Well, we want to focus on the clan of Kohath. They were to carry all the holy things. Numbers 4 verse 15 says, They must not touch the holy things lest they die. Many centuries later when Israel was in disobedience and the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and then was in the process of being returned, you remember that the men who were bringing the Ark back to Israel, what did they do? They made a mistake. They put it in a cart. Things can go wrong in a cart. And the oxen stumbled at one point. And a man named Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark and God struck him dead immediately. Why? Why would he do that? Because God had mandated that great care be taken with the holy things. Therefore, they were to be carried by hand and he had warned that if you touch them, you die. Side lesson, when God issues a warning, there is no expiration. The holy things were given by God to represent his own holiness, his own perfection, the awe with which sinful mankind must hold God. In fact, it's the holiness of God when compared to our own sinfulness that makes salvation from sin necessary, isn't it? How could unholy humanity ever hope to dwell forever with holy God? We can't unless our sins are atoned for and God makes us holy as he is holy. That's the only way it's possible. And in Christ, that's precisely what has happened. And yet, just because we live under the new covenant, just because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that does not mean that we somehow treat God's holiness with lesser importance. The holiness of God is still important. When you approach God to worship Him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the holiness of God. You are the fear God. You are the hold God in awe and in reverence. You're the tremble at the thought of the might and the purity and the holiness of God. I think that's something we've lost in the church very often. We think that Jesus is our pal. Yes, he is our brother, but he is also our king and he is holy and we're not. And we must always acknowledge that difference. The principle of holiness. We can see another principle of worship. We'll call this the principle of sacrifice. Chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the Pentateuch, 89 verses. Let's read the rest of it together. All it does is simply describe the offerings from the tribal leaders of Israel, and it's necessary for it to be long because it gives great accuracy. Verses 12 through 88 name the tribal leaders and the offering each one brought from for the tabernacle. One tribe brings an offering every day for 12 days. Talk about a dedication ceremony. It took 12 days to dedicate this structure Remarkable. It was noteworthy. It was a long dedication of the center of worship of Israel. Every tribal leader was to bring commodities, silver plates, golden dishes, and various animals to sacrifice. And by the time the six wagons had made their rounds, a fortune in silver and gold had been brought to the Lord. 2,400 shekels of silver. That's about 50 pounds of silver. 120 shekels of gold. That's two and a half pounds of gold. And 252 animals would have been sacrificed if you are keeping track all through that chapter. Now, just a side note here. There's, there's never a, a, a right place to say this, but I just want to remind you about the makeup of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel include the two half-tribes, as God has called them, of Ephraim and Manasseh. They are the sons of Joseph, not the sons of Jacob. So Levi is in some ways, the tribe of Levi, they're not counted among the tribes. If you count up all the names of tribes, there are 13. And yet, because God wants the perfect number of 12, then uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are called half-tribes since they're not sons of Jacob directly. But Levi is not counted among the tribes in this list, and they don't bring an offering. They're God's servants. They don't have to bring an offering. They're being supported by the offerings. The chief, chieftain of every tribe is listed this is his big moment in the spotlight to represent his tribe. And, and I would imagine uh, after the book of Numbers is written down that some of the, the descendants of these family members could point back and look, hey, look, there's great granddad in the Bible. 
great moment for them. But the real reason they're listed is not for their glory. This is an official record. Why is there such detail here? This is an official record that all the chiefs, all the lords of the individual tribes were acknowledging and bowing down to the kingship of Yahweh. You have to understand something. We always picture Israel as a unified group. We say all the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not a big deal. These chieftains were essentially kings. These tribes were huge. These were tens of thousands. These were small nations. And so by listing these men, the actual offerings they brought, it is the signature that says, yes, Yahweh is our one true king. And we bow to him. He is the God who rescued us from Egypt. And so they're acknowledging God's rule by bringing their treasure and by sacrificing hundreds of animals. And you might ask, why must so much blood be spilled? Blood is mentioned in the Bible 425 times. The Bible is a bloody book. It's not only the symbol of the life of an animal or a human, it's also the symbol of death. When blood is spilled, it's because of sin. It's always because of sin. We deserve to have our blood spilled to suffer God's wrath for all eternity, but God, in His grace for Israel... He provided a reminder of their need for grace. Instead of their blood being rightly spilled, they bring sacrifices. And the idea is this animal is going on the altar. It should have been me. Now, these animal sacrifices were never meant, nor could they be a permanent fixture. They couldn't provide atonement. Permanent atonement, a perfect man would have to die in the place of sinful mankind. And of course, as we've said many times, to be perfect, this man would have to have never sinned and not even be capable of sin. Therefore, this man cannot be anything except God. God himself, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And how important is blood when, when considering Christ? Very important. Romans 3.25 says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. That means a satisfaction by his what? By his blood. Romans 5.9 says that you have been justified, made righteous before God by his blood. And Ephesians 1, 7 says that in Christ we have redemption through his, you can guess it, blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know, in fact, there was one advantage that the faithful Israelite had that we don't have today. We don't have at least in the stark of detail. The faithful Israelite was constantly reminded that his worship is based in and provided for and begun with sacrifice. That blood had to be spilled to enjoy communion and fellowship with God and to enjoy his favor and delight and provision. Can I, can I put it this way? That to commune with God, if you were to do so rightly, you always looked around and there were dead animals and there were fires burning and there were offerings going up to the Lord and there was blood everywhere. You were reminded that your act of worship was costly I think this thought is often lost on the Christian today that, that to pray, to have God hear you, to sing a song which pleases God, to give a gift that is acceptable to God, to serve God in a manner pleasing to Him, the blood of Christ Jesus, the perfect man, had to be spilled for you. For all of that, any of that, to be acceptable. Let me put it this way. If you like coming to church... You have never enjoyed a single moment of worship that was not purchased by the blood of Christ. Not one. By his agony, by his pain, by his substitutionary death. But God has given us a reminder of sacrifice. What is that reminder? He asks us to sacrifice. He asks us to give. We give as a reflection and an act of gratitude. The tribal chieftains brought a small fortune to God, and that was just for the tabernacle dedication. That doesn't include all the other mandated gifts elsewhere in the law of God. As a matter of fact, a refusal to give really is tantamount to a refusal to acknowledge that God has sacrificed to allow you to be his child, to allow you to be a worshiper. When someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to give, my response is, then you're not a Christian. Because you're not acknowledging the sacrifice God made for you. So when you approach God to worship him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the sacrifice of God. Never forget that. Worship costs. 
Worship costs. It is not free. We find a third principle. We'll call this the principle of knowledge. The principle of knowledge. After all the offerings had been brought, the sacrifice was made for 12 days. Look at the very last verse in chapter 7, verse 89. Not very often you get to say the phrase, verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And it, that is the voice of the Lord, spoke to him. Moses is the appointed mediator between God and Israel. And yet even he has to stop short of the most holy place, the inner sanctum where the ark of the covenant, the throne of God on earth was. There were restrictions even for Moses. The holy of holies was off limits. It was not to be entered without sacrifice and only on the day of atonement as prescribed in the law. And so Moses doesn't see the glory of God here so much as he hears the words of God. The voice of God speaking to him as Israel's appointed representative. What a great mercy of God that he communicates to mankind through words. Words we can understand and he tells us of himself. You think about this when you teach your little ones the alphabet. You are teaching them 26 little letters, 26 little markings through which they will be able to put together words. And through those words, they will be able to unlock the mysteries of the universe. They will be able to unlock the mysteries of God and all that God requires. We don't have to guess who God is. We don't have to guess what God is like. We don't have to guess as to his character. Why do we not have to guess? Because he told us in words, in a book we can put under our arm. Now, why is this so important when it comes to worship? Why is knowledge, hearing the voice of God, hearing the words of God, uh, can't I just worship God any way I want? Can't I just tell him that I really love him? Well, this is important when it comes to worship because the knowledge of God is the foundation of worship, isn't it? It has to be the knowledge of God. You can't worship that which you don't know, or worse, that which you misconstrue in your mind. If the God you think you're worshiping is radically different in your mind than he actually is, then are you truly worshiping God? You're not. You're worshiping an idol that you've created that is not accurate. Hosea chapter 4, God describes the rebellious state of Israel and her lack of true worship. Hosea 4 verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. This generation of Israelite doesn't know God. They don't know the words of God that he's given about himself and therefore they can't worship. They're in rebellion. You cannot worship that which you do not know. Now, they're doing all the outward acts of worship. They're doing the sacrifices. They're doing the burnt offerings, but they don't know God. As a matter of fact, God rebukes them in Hosea 6 verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying, I don't want your outward acts. I want you to know me. Then and only then can you worship me. By the way, this is why one of the greatest acts of worship you can perform is simply to tell God's words back to him. You can do this in song. You can do this in scripture. Isn't it a great thing to be able to say, Lord, I'd like to read back to you Psalm 15 because it delights my heart and I know it delights yours. The the greatest words you can ever give to God, the greatest worship you can ever give to God are the words that he already gave. The greatest songs are the ones that we speak about what we know of God. And the greatest words we can say to God are the ones he's already spoken. And that's one of the great benefits of preaching. Preaching informs your knowledge of God. It informs you of his ways, of his plans, his desires, and certainly of his attributes. In preaching, we, we hear through interwoven through all the scriptures the supremacy and sovereignty of God, the immutable, unchangeable nature of God, the power and might of God, the faithfulness and goodness of God, the patience and grace of God, the mercy and loving kindness of God, the justice and wrath of God. Let me put it this way. The knowledge of God is the fuel of your worship and it is the content of your worship. Somebody says, I don't know how to worship God. Then you need to know more about him. It's the content of our worship. When you approach God to worship him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, 
Your worship must be informed by the knowledge of God. Must be the knowledge. We see another principle in Numbers, beginning in Numbers 8, verse 1. We'll call this the principle of presence. The principle of presence. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstands. And the lampstands were incredibly ornate. They were well carved and and, and put together. These are are oil lampstands to light the holy place. The holy place is the inner chamber of the tabernacle through which you would get to the most holy place. Exodus 27 commanded that once it was set up, once the tabernacle was set up, these lamps were to be tended all night long. Leviticus 24 commands that it was to be lit continually. These, These little lights were never to go out. These flames were always to burn. What does this mean? Well, What's it mean when the lights are on? It means someone's home. This is the presence of God. In, in a very general sense, the continually lit lamps were an indicator that God is present with his people. The most holy place, the inner sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant was, that acted as the throne of God on earth. We've talked about that in detail before. While the holy place the, the area just outside the most holy place has the bread of the presence, the table that holds the bread, and the burning lamps were just a broad indicator that God is here. And so, as it were, the, the, the presence of God is there before the most holy place. It reminded people of a great truth which would be recorded later in Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so, in the broad sense... The lamps indicated the presence of God. But you know, one of the things we love about progressive revelation is that as the Bible goes further, we get more and more detail. And as God gave more and more revelation in Scripture, this symbol of the flames of the lamp became much more specific. The prophet Zechariah received a message from the Lord in Zechariah 4. The temple needed to be rebuilt after the return of the exiles. But the challenges were big and seemingly insurmountable. And so Zechariah received a message from God for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the man in charge of rebuilding the temple. But when Zechariah received this message, it was in a vision. And in the vision, he saw, guess what? A lampstand of gold with seven lamps. And you say, oh, the same lampstand, the same lamps that were in the tabernacle. Yes. And here's the message that went with the lampstand vision tells Zerubbabel that the temple will be built, quote, not by might, nor by power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord. Look at the seven lamps. Acts chapter 2. The apostles are seen miraculously to suddenly have flames of fire over their heads. What are they? They're living lamps. They're living oil lamps. That's what the flames of fire are. Signifying what? The Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit has come upon them and was birthing the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, John sees a vision which includes seven golden lampstands. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself tells him that the seven lampstands are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Churches who possess whom? The Holy Spirit. Revelation 4, the very throne room of God. Not the model representative one on earth that you carry around on your shoulders, but the real one. Is described in Revelation 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold, the perfected, the perfect spirit of God. So what do we have in heaven? We have the throne of God where God sits. And before the throne, you have the spirit of God. What do you have in the tabernacle? the throne of God in the most holy place and outside that before the throne you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand with the lit lamps representing the ever-present Spirit of God. It's so important that God commands Moses that these lamps never be extinguished because the presence of God is continual, is perpetual, particularly as it concerns the worship of God. 
this would have been important for an ancient Israelite because they came out of a culture 400 years of being immersed in Egyptian idolatry in which the belief was that your various gods came and went at times. That the sun god, Ra, was not very effective at night and so you needed the moon god to cover for him. This is totally different. A god who is perpetually, always, 24-7 present with his people. That's brand new. Now, we do believe in the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere present at all times. And of course, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're told this in the New Testament in multiple places. But the symbol of the lampstands reminds us again that at the core of our worship exists the presence of God. The presence of God. This isn't just an intellectual activity that we're engaged in right now at this very moment. The presence of God in worship isn't supposed to be some sort of entertainment for the worshipers. The presence of God is not a divine electrical plug for you to plug into for some sort of emotional or spiritual jolt. And no, we do not invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. The grace of God has invited us to commune with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit goes where He wishes and certainly doesn't need our invitation. But we shouldn't forget the presence of the Spirit of God in worship, particularly in our corporate worship setting. And this has three applications I want to give you to remember this because we don't talk about this in our circles as much as we ought to. The presence of the Spirit of God in worship, first of all, should give us a sense of preparedness. A sense of preparedness. Honestly, I'm shocked when I, when I see or hear of people rolling out of bed on a Sunday morning and treating worship as something you do spontaneously. Oh, I think I'll go worship God today. Like saying, I think I'll go get gas in my vehicle or I think I'll go buy some vegetables at the grocery store or I think I'll go get some ice cream. Gathering with God's people for worship is not meant to be spontaneous. It is planned. It is Something you think about, you prepare for, you, you come in prepared in your heart. The presence of the Spirit of God also, as a second application, should give a sense of weightiness. Not just preparedness, but weightiness. We're gathered as those who possess the Holy Spirit. Have you stopped to think about that lately? The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you? We're in a unified act of worship together. The presence of God is real and he is to be acknowledged. There is weightiness to this. Should give us a sense of preparedness. Should give us a sense of weightiness. Should give us a sense of meekness. A sense of meekness. If the Spirit of God is here, then he expects your attention to be on him. On God to give your heart and your mind to these moments. To be all here. To be completely here. I... I'm astounded whenever I've seen, and I haven't seen it here recently, whenever I see somebody checking their texts in a worship service. God is here. Do you think the Holy Spirit says, oh, that must be really important if you need to check that? Preparedness, weightiness, meekness. What else would you pay attention to? So when you approach God to worship Him, whether you are alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the presence of God. Let me give you another principle. We'll call this one the principle of protection. The principle of protection, chapter 8, verse 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. Let them go with a razor all over their body, over all their body, and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Following this, the Levites were to have sacrifices made for their sins. They were to be consecrated to the Lord's service. And verses 8 through 22 describes an elaborate consecration, a dedication to the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Lord claims ownership over the Levites. Verse 14 of chapter 8, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Why is this? Well, the Levites are taken by the Lord instead of the firstborn of every family which was owed to God because he spared them at the the first Passover when God killed the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And so they're owed to God. But precisely what were the Levites consecrated 
what were they set apart to do? They had specific jobs. Well, first of all, just a quick distinction for you. All priests were to be Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Numbers 3, verse 9, Aaron, Moses' brother and his sons are priests, and Levites are, quote, wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. In other words, the spiritual leaders, the few spiritual leaders of Israel were to be served by the Levites who enabled the leading of worship by various support tasks. And yes, if you're thinking that sounds a lot like elders and deacons in the church, it does because it's the same. It's the same system, the same leadership structure. We've already seen that the Levites are tabernacle servants. They're the ones who assemble, disassemble, carry the tabernacle, and so forth. In fact, all the offerings given in chapter 7 in those 89 verses were likely to start off the support of the Levites so that they could dedicate themselves fully to this work. But a lesser-known job of the Levites, one that we don't think about as much, was that of protection. They were to protect the worship of God. The Levites were the guardians of proper worship and proper worshipers. They were to encamp around, in a perimeter, around the tabernacle. Numbers 3 verse 10 says, If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. In fact, this was serious enough that this was actually a protection for all of Israel. Numbers 3.38 again says that any outsider, meaning an unauthorized person entering the tabernacle at the wrong time or in some sort of self-styled worship, they are to be executed. And the reason given, to protect the people of Israel. So if the Levites failed to guard the worship of God, all of Israel would suffer? Yes, they would. Remember God's warning to the church of Ephesus right after the ministry of Timothy, by the way? Their love had grown cold, their love for Christ, their love for each other, and they were all now about mere doctrine and no love. They were the theological eggheads who did not love Christ and did not love one another. They had not protected their worship, and so Christ warned them. Revelation 2, verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. In other words, God will no longer be in that church work. The presence of God will leave. It will be doomed to fail, and it should. So how do we protect our worship? How do we do that? Well, by sticking to what God prescribed. Colossians three sixteen and 17, we read this this morning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We protect our worship by guarding sound doctrine. We protect our worship by guarding the pulpit. We protect our worship by guarding the music, by guarding the leadership, guarding the mission and the direction of the church. And yes, by guarding the membership of the church. That if there is one who continues in a heinous sin that is observable and is well known, that we warn them once, we warn them twice, we warn them three times, and after that we excuse them from the fellowship of the church. Not to be mean, but first of all, for their protection that perhaps they might come back and might repent, but also for the protection of the body, that we are to be a purified body, we are to be a protected body. And so when you approach God to worship Him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the protection of worship. We get another principle. We'll call this the principle of cleanness. The principle of cleanness. And this goes all the way in chapter 9 now. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. The Passover was the perpetual reminder to God's people that he had passed over them the night he killed the firstborn of Egypt. And instead of their lives, each family sacrificed a lamb in the place of the firstborn of the family. But interestingly, the rest of this chapter, or verses 9 through 14 rather, primarily concerns a postponed Passover, one that you can't take. 
And so some could celebrate Passover a month late, one month later. And there were two reasons to postpone. The first reason is that someone was on a long distance journey, which, by the way, would mean they had come into contact with all kinds of spiritual uncleanness, with all kinds of unconsecrated people and places. And the second reason is if you had come in contact with a dead body, generally a family member that has passed away. And so you were ceremonially unclean at that point. And so the worshiper was given an allowance to perform the prescribed actions and sacrifices to be clean before worshiping with Passover. Now, how important was cleanness? How important was ritual purity before God? Well, in the Pentateuch alone, the idea of ritual cleanness is brought up 70 times. If one is going to approach holy God to worship, then one must be clean. There is a sense, here's this word again, of preparedness to worship. David prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. And by the way, this is not just some old-fashioned Old Testament concept. This is a new covenant concept as well. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven concerning partaking of the Lord's table. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You recall that Jesus illustrated the principle of spiritual cleanness by washing the feet of his disciples. And he he said that only the feet needed to be washed. Why did he say that? Well, he meant that the filth of this life, which your sin has brought with you, the worship needs to be washed. But your salvation in Christ, your whole body, as it were, is clean still. Your salvation is still secured. And yet you wash. I, I don't know why this is so hard to understand. Let me give you an easy way to understand it. The children in your home will always be welcome at your table. But what must they do first? Wash their hands. They must come clean. They must have clean hands before coming to the table. And in the same way, we settle accounts with God. We confess sin. We prepare in cleanness to approach him in worship. And so before you worship God, you ask yourself, just like an Israelite would, where have you journeyed in your heart that has left you unclean? What have you touched that is spiritually dead? Who do you have bitterness against? Against whom have you gossiped? What authority have you rebelled against? What words have you spoken that are killer, reviling words? Then don't dare approach God until you've confessed and settled accounts with the Lord. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 says it could cost you your life if you make a habit of this. You know, as a pastor, we deal with life and death all the time. And I've always been curious, when somebody dies, I wonder why. I wonder why. Only God knows. By the way, sometimes in the church, we think of worship as something you do to go get clean. No, get clean before you worship. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus said, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, on occasion when we take the Lord's table, I see some of you letting it pass by. And in a sense, that excites me and thrills me because that tells me you've examined your heart and you know something needs to be done. And that's good. That is good and that's right. But once you have, once you have dealt with those sins, once you've confessed your sin, then we rejoice that Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so when you approach God to worship him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the cleanness of worship. Let me give you another principle. We'll call this the principle of requirement. The principle of requirement. Numbers 9 verse 13. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And previously in Leviticus and here in Numbers, we've seen that the phrase be cut off from his people often means that it's not the people performing this. It is God performing this and it is a random execution, so to speak. It may be a separation from his people 
But it's not so much the sense of we're sending you packing with your bags packed. It's more the sense of that person suddenly dying. So celebrating Passover wasn't an option. It wasn't a special service. It was required. Now, I know to our New Testament ears, that sounds really uncomfortable. The words required and worship don't go together well for us. Shouldn't we just want to worship Jesus? Well, of course. The church in Acts 2 began gathering daily in joy and in fellowship. But the worship gathering is the central feature of the worship of God. Can you imagine this on the day of Pentecost? Peter preaches his fiery sermon. 3,000 souls come to faith in Christ. And then Peter closes and says, Well, everyone go worship Christ your own way and we hope to see you around sometime. That doesn't make any sense to us. What did they do? They immediately started gathering. And in fact, the requirements of worshiping God served in Israel as a cleansing agent. We just saw this. The one who chose to willfully miss Passover is cut off from his people and Israel is cleansed of a false worshiper. When we think about Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, very familiar to us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The book of Hebrews was written at least in part to warn Jews who had claimed Christ, claimed true faith, and yet were being tempted because of persecution to revert back to Judaism. The writers urging the readers, prove the validity of your faith. Continue meeting together. Show that you're regenerate. Be encouraged in the faith and all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. The gathering of God's people, the congregating of God's people in Christ. That's the central focus of your life and it's not to be neglected. It's not optional. It's not seen as in a continual contest with other competing interests. Some have said there's not really that big of an emphasis on gathering together in the New Testament. I scratch my head at that statement. The reason that's said is because, for example, in Paul's New Testament epistles, he doesn't really ever speak directly to you should gather together more often. He doesn't really say that. Instead, it's assumed to be obvious. It's obvious that the true believer will, of course, gather with God's people. What's the difference today? Why is it that today, more than ever before, there is a pushback against making gathering with God's people the top priority of your life? I mean, now we just about have to have marketing pushes just to get people in church, much less being a faithful and loyal member of the church. I think there's several reasons why there's such a pushback today. First of all, there's more options than ever before. There's more options than ever before. Not only church options, but a million ways, as one man said, to amuse ourselves to death. Now, countless other things call to us on the Lord's day. Now it's a temptation to make Sunday a second Saturday and to find ways to do that. It used to be that the church was not only your hub for spiritual life, it was your hub for cultural life and social life. Your faith community was where all your friends were. Could I say this? It should still be that way. It should still be that way. So there's more options than ever before. There's another reason we see this pushback. A new message that the church must adapt to the culture. A new message that the church must adapt to the culture. I'm not talking about adapting resources or technology. I'm talking about churches working hard to appear not so churchy, to put it that way. Well, we're informal because formal people can't be real, apparently. We want even non-Christians to have a meaningful worship experience, aside from the fact that a non-Christian is incapable of having a worship experience. We're all about our community and helping those in, in need. Find me one verse in the New Testament that says that's what the church is about. It's not. And so this doesn't encourage genuine faithfulness. One more reason there's pushback against making the gathering of the church a requirement and that is the belittling of basic elements of worship. The belittling of basic elements of worship. The church has attempted to destroy the singing of hymns. Even though this dates all the way back to the early church, the church has attempted to make the human connection with the preacher more important than what is being said. There is something to be said for the tradition in some, in some denominations where the preacher shows up in a black robe. It's the same reason that a judge comes in a black robe because it's more about the office than it is about the person. 
The preacher is to be the mouthpiece of God regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable that makes you. And your personal connection with me is not the issue. It's are you connecting with the words of God? The church has attempted to make the gospel as unoffensive as possible by changing the message to getting your life together is what the gospel about. Can I say this? The gospel is really more about getting your death together. About dying with Christ, dying to self, preparing to die in faith. That's what the gospel is. So we have countless other options. We change the message for our culture. We belittle the basic elements of worship. And now we've created an atmosphere in which the church is courting customers instead of proclaiming the truth to dying souls and encouraging the holiness of living souls. And so when you approach God to worship Him, whether you're alone or gathered with the body of Christ, your worship must be informed by the requirement of worship. Let me give you one more. The principle of obedience. The principle of obedience. I won't say a lot about this tonight because that's the whole subject of our next message. But let's look at how worship and obedience to God interact with one another. Chapter 9, verses 15 through 23 gives us a preview of what's about to happen to Israel when traveling. And I want to read this section to you because there's, some, there's an important pattern in here that I want you to catch. Chapter 9, verse 15. On the day when the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And that evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, That cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there. The people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Did you get the pattern? At the what? Command of the Lord. And even, it's just amazing At the command of the Lord, twice in verse 18. At the command of the Lord, twice in verse 20. At the command of the Lord, three times in verse 23. They adjusted to God's schedule. And he even says here, whether it was two days or a month or a longer time. Now, stop for just a minute. You are one of the sons of the Gershonites or the Merariites or the Kohathites. And your job is to set up this massive worship tent this is a big deal it takes thousands of people to do it and it takes heft you you had to retire when you were 50 because by then you were done you couldn't do it anymore and so these guys spend all day long they they set up the tabernacle they do the appropriate sacrifices to to re-inaugurate the worship and everything is set up just perfectly and the cloud of the glory of god has settled over the tabernacle everybody in israel has set up their tents ladies you've got your pots and pans all ready to go finally there and men they've got all their animals in the right place and yay we're settled down you wake up the next morning uh where's the cloud oh it's way over there all right here we go and they just did it they just obeyed and it almost seems random i think it is because god is teaching them to obey Like a father with a young child saying, when I say clean your room, you're going to clean it. And if I say dump your drawer out and pick it up again, you're going to do that. If I say fold your socks in threes, not in twos, you're going to do that. If I say I want you to turn your bed upside down and and look for uh, bugs, you're going to do that. If I want you to move this pile of rocks from here to here, you're not going to ask questions. You're just going to do it until you learn that when dad says go, you go. That's what he did. By the way, In the ancient Near East, you didn't travel during the day. You traveled at night because of the sun and because of enemies. But God has them traveling when? In broad daylight. 
entrusting themselves to his care to do as he pleases. Whatever God decided, that's what they did. And so God's people went whenever God commanded and God's people came whenever God commanded. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets. That verse brings a tear to my eye. Of hammered work you shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. The trumpets were blown at certain feasts to gather the people. This was their version of texting the congregation. The trumpets were blown at the beginning of the month, beginning of the year, indicating a new worship cycle had begun. The trumpets were blown then to break camp. The trumpets were blown to sound the alarm, any military emergency. Now, by the way, the trumpet here has much more an announcement and gathering connotation and not so much yet a musical and worship connotation. In fact, Leviticus 1 through 16, which is concerned with the worship of the individual, doesn't mention music once. This is still a developing aspect of the worship of God. God doesn't emphasize it yet. Why is that? At this point, he's more concerned with the holiness, the weightiness, the sacrifice necessary for worship. And even the trumpets were to be God-focused and pointed to his character. Look at the end of verse 10 of chapter 10. They, that is the trumpets, they shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. They were a reminder. Why is obedience so important as a worshiper? Because it's the measure of what you truly worship. Let me put it to you this way. You will always obey the God you truly worship. You will always obey. That's the measure of what or whom you are worshiping. All people obey the God they truly worship. I want to put this all together because I know we did a lot of principles. And so I want to give you a simpler way to think about worship that I think will be helpful to you. Simple way to think about worship. First of all, worship is first an upward focus. Worship is first an upward focus. Worship pulls our attention off of the idols of our lives, which want to compete for our affection. It's a time to genuinely refocus our loyalty and our fidelity on our God and God our Savior. And we have an example of this. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 records Isaiah intently focused on God in a vision of the heavenly throne room. Isaiah's focus is definitely upward. And if you read Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, it's clear that he is up. And so worship is first an upward focus. But then worship causes an inward focus. Worship causes an inward focus. When you see God for who he truly is, then you see yourself for who you truly are. You see parts of yourself that didn't bother you before and now they're starkly revealed and remind you of your need for Christ and forgiveness. After Isaiah saw the Lord for who he was, he cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because of his upward focus, his inward focus led him to confess his sin. And finally, worship then causes an outward focus. It causes an outward focus, a personal response, a deep desire to be obedient to the call of God, to be obedient to all that God would say. God made a call for a faithful minister of his word, and Isaiah said famously, here I am, send me. His upward focus led to an inward focus, which created and resulted in an outward focus. And all of our principles of worship that we've identified fit into those three categories. Holiness, sacrifice, knowledge, presence. That's an upward focus. Protection and cleanness. That's an inward focus. And requirement and obedience. That's an outward focus. And so if worship is attributing worth to God above all things, then we ought to be about the joy of being a people who worships upward first, causing an inward self-examination and resulting outwardly in a life lived in obedience to the one to whom we attribute worth above all things. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks tonight. We thank you for the example of worship, the weightiness, the gravitas with which you have described yourself 
and described the requirement of worship. And Lord, we worship certainly with joy. We worship in spirit and in truth. But might we elevate our desire to worship in weightiness and in seriousness and sobriety and somberness to remember that the God we approach is the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who created the planets and the stars, the same God who rescued Israel through the Red Sea, the same God who flooded the earth, the same God who came in the person of Christ and the same God who will judge all the earth, saving those who have been made righteous and dooming those who have not. And so might we, for the rest of our days, any time, whether alone or in our corporate time of worship, approach you with this weightiness and with this humility. We pray that you might be honored and glorified by our worship. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.